the benefits for me outweigh the risk, the benefits of humanizing science, of humanizing scientists, again, making clear that, you know, we're standing at the very edge of knowledge. And it's a complex, hard one, back and forth with nature. Welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I had a fascinating conversation with Imran Khan, who is Head of Public Engagement for the Wellcome Trust, who are an independent global charitable foundation, the fourth largest in the world, that supports science to solve urgent health challenges to do with mental health, global heating, and infectious diseases. Imran leads Wellcome's efforts in helping the public trust, use, and inform health research. And previously, he was chief executive of the British Science Association, a science journalist, and a political researcher. He's also serving as a trustee of Nesta, the UK's Social Innovation Foundation. I've learned a lot from working with Wellcome and Imran and his team a few times over the past few years and have always been impressed with the breadth and scope of the work that they do. And it feels like in the midst of a COVID pandemic, and with global heating topping almost everyone's agenda, it feels like an important time to be considering the role of science in our ever-changing world. So I started out by asking him, what is public engagement and why does it matter? Enjoy. For me, it feels a bit like asking, what is science? or what is society and that it's not a, a singular thing and what it seems to describe is a whole set of different practices and functions in my job we're trying to engage the public with welcome's mission so the, the core idea is that what welcome does as a philanthropic foundation is we invest billions of pounds uh, over the course of years in science and health research all with the aim of improving people's health around the world when we're doing public engagement what we're really asking is what is the role of the public in that process you know we know what the role of scientists is they're the ones doing experiments, designing hypotheses, trying to publish, generating new evidence. And we also perhaps know what the role of health professionals is. We might know what the role of governments is, but often we overlook what the role of individuals and society and, and people is. So for me, public engagement is, is just asking that question. And sometimes the answer is quite straightforward. If what we're doing is trying to prevent the spread of antibiotic resistance and protect the world from a future where antibiotics don't work, Clearly, the role of scientists is to try and invent new antibiotics. The role of governments is to try and change the commercial incentives to make sure that we are protecting existing antibiotics while also incentivizing new ones. But the role of the public might be trying to better safeguard our existing store of antibiotics. It might be trying to generate public pressure to make sure governments do that. It might be understanding and engaging with kind of the reality of the kind of existential threat that this poses. So that's what it is. But I think often people look at public engagement and think about the manifestations of it. So public engagement might be a focus group that someone has, or it might be a science festival that someone go to, goes to, or it might be you know watching Brian Cox on the telly. I find that slightly problematic sometimes because we don't talk about public engagement with football. We don't talk about public engagement with rock music because it's sort of inherent in those fields that they just don't really exist without um, the public's involvement. And, and by sort of talking about public engagement with science or with policy or with health research or with anything else with almost acknowledging rather than setting up 
the separation and demarcation between the professionals, what the, you know, what the real science is versus what we let the public do. Do you think it's a recognition, the need for public engagement is somehow a recognition that the world has become so complex and science has become so complex that it's, there has become a sort of them and us in terms of expert scientists and everybody else, or is that too simplistic? I think that's fair. And I, and I think it's also a recognition that given that that split has happened, given that there is this almost inevitable divide between experts who spend their entire career studying one molecule versus the public who, then the last time they might have engaged with science meaningfully was when they were doing GCSEs, whatever have you, at school. That that gap isn't sustainable, that when it comes to the big challenges and opportunities facing society, whether that's climate change, whether that's COVID, whether that's AI, if that's the scale of the gap for everyone, then we're not going to have a healthy discourse or healthy outcomes as a society. So we do need to find new ways for non-experts, non-specialists, non-professionals to feel like they still have a stake and they still have Mm. some kind of ownership in the direction of science and technology. Otherwise, we're making decisions as a either as a professional class or as a society where one side isn't really listening to and and thinking about the interests of the other. But I guess when it comes to something like covid or climate change it's more than just buy-in like the behavior that we exhibit massively manifests the success with which we can tackle those two challenges in particular so welcome launched a new strategy recently didn't it and what one of the lines which i just thought was interesting is that welcome supports science and i was just kind of curious why do you think science needs support now perhaps in a way that it didn't when welcome did its last strategy Interesting question. I think the urgency with which we look at the role of science has possibly increased. And in many ways, COVID is the perfect example where clearly the world is is trying to contain pandemic, it's trying to uh, mitigate the effects of it, it's trying to safeguard the most vulnerable in all our societies. And to some extent, it's also trying to be equitable in how it does that to make sure that actually what we're not doing is just looking after people in the rich north, but we're also trying to make sure that people in in the global south are considered as well and we're doing this by trying to have lockdowns we're trying to reduce transmission we're having economic measures to protect people from the impacts of industries going bust but one thing that's very clear in all of this is that we can keep trying all those things but ultimately there is no exit strategy from covid until we have a vaccine until we have better diagnostics until we've got new therapeutics and all of those things will ultimately come from science. And that need for those things, preventative measures, therapeutics and diagnostics, is so urgent. And it's, it's almost the kind of the perfect metaphor for modern society's uh, relationship with science in that, in some cases, the need for science is, is really just hugely apparent. And when you need research, you need innovation, and you need insight into how we, how we go next, science is crucial. But there's a bit of a breakdown at the moment between the kind of political narrative, which was very much around following the science and being science led in terms of, you know, how to respond to the pandemic to now there seems to be a divergence with certain members of SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Committee, uh, and what some of the kind of politicians are kind of saying as well. And sometimes with something like public engagement, it can somehow feel like the public is ill-informed and we need to educate the public it's a one-way flow of value and information how can we have that sort of two-way dialogue again so people can actually hear each other well so the the thing that you reminded me of a little bit was the brexit vote 
So you, probably all of your listeners will remember that just before the referendum happened and the various campaigns on both sides were raging, that the science, I guess, actually broader academic establishment was very, very one-sided on this issue. You know, they made very clear that they thought that uh, leaving the European Union would be terrible for UK research, that, you know, science really depended and thrived on the international connections we had, the ease with which it was possible to work with researchers across Europe, the funding that British science got from the European Research Council. You know, we we as a country kind of got more out of that than we put in. And I think a lot of people just also really appreciated the principle of openness and the sense that, you know, science thrived in, in those kind of open conditions when fewer barriers in society generally are, are up. And there are all sorts of letters that went from, you know, the national academies in the UK to various newspapers, lots of senior scientists, you know, everyone from Brian Cox to the science minister to the president of the Royal Society all came out and were very clear about the potential negative impacts on, on UK research if, if we left the European Union. And then I kind of, I, re- I remember, obviously, I was kind of disappointed we left the European Union and, and was kind of fearful for the effects of it. But I remember just after the results came out, there was this real kind of outpouring of kind of grief and anguish from the UK science sector that senior scientists had been so clear to the UK public about what would happen and what the negative consequences of leaving the EU would be. And yet the British public, in their wisdom, went ahead and voted for it anyway. And I picked up a kind of palpable sense of betrayal, the sense that don't you know what we do for you? And yet you've kind of not listened to us when it's come to this. And the thing I reflected then, and I continue to reflect now, is that if you think about the places that voted most intensely for Brexit, they're largely also the places where science isn't. You know, if you think about, you know, somewhere like Clacton-on-Sea, which I think was one of the most Brexit communities in the UK, you know, that's not somewhere where they have universities or government research labs. It's not somewhere where if you grow up, you're likely to be able to go and do a PhD and become a scientist. And most of the places that voted for Brexit, you know, it's not just science, obviously, it's kind of all economic progress. But they are some of the communities that have been most left behind by innovation and progress generally. But I would argue in this case, science and innovation in particular. So if you go your entire life without meeting a scientist, feeling like your kids could grow up to be scientists, being engaged with the process of science and having an idea that scientists have got your like your personal interests at heart, then why would you kind of trust and be interested in what scientists have to say on Brexit? So I, I'm agreeing with your basic premise, which is that scientists perhaps need to be have fewer assumptions about what currency they and we hold with the public. Obviously, it remains the case that science is hugely trusted by the public and, and the work we did at Welcome bears that out. But sometimes I feel like that trust is firstly quite relative. And secondly, it's also perhaps a bit brittle. And we do need to work harder to gain the trust of the public if, if we're going to be listened to. I just wonder whether there's a, a responsibility for scientists to go where people are, not you know, literally get out of their ivory towers and their university towns uh, and sort of go and talk with people, spend time with where people are. I just wonder what examples of public engagement activity that you've come across, which is trying to meet people where they are, whether it's geographically or intellectually or in terms of their understanding of science. Yeah, and I I think there's tons and I think they're hugely diverse. I think part of the the challenge we sometimes have is that kind of public engagement as an idea is seen as a thing that scientists should do. And Mm. we end up doing quite 
random things. Uh, what, what we need to do more is ask, what is it we're trying to change? You know, what is the actual difference we're trying to make? And how do we design uh, an interaction or a product or an engagement that's based on that? You know, so to give you some examples, there's a, a brilliant festival that I think it's in Lewisham in, in South London called Smash Fest that's uh, run by an amazing woman called Lindsay Kerr. Uh, and she set up this festival for teenagers, basically, to engage with science. But it's not a kind of a classic science festival where you get a bunch of scientists and you have them all talk about all the fascinating research they're doing on, you know, zebrafish genomics or particle physics or whatever it might be. The basic premise of the festival is that it's a kind of, this is the first edition, I think they change it every year, but the first one is based on a premise that a giant asteroid is about to hit. All the teenagers who come to the festival are basically part of the, the response to it. So they've got to figure out everything from the atmospheric science to how do you then kind of move people around to, and what are the ways in which we can protect ourselves from this and essentially learn about the science that way. And that was just, you know, the aim of that was to kind of find a different way for kids to engage with, with science rather than just being told about research. Whereas another example, you know, it's one that I'm quite interested in that probably doesn't fit the usual mold of public engagement. But there's a website, I think primarily in the US, but I think people from all over can join called Patients Like Me. It's a way for essentially anyone, but primarily those with rarer health conditions to be able to share the impacts of, well, share what their kind of illness journey is, but in particular, share how various medications or drugs or other treatment regimens they're on, how they're going, and mm -hmm. creating a pool of researchable evidence for researchers who ordinarily wouldn't be able to track those kind of interactions. And so it, it creates new data you can research, but also creates a sense of empowerment for those patients because mm -hmm. they can say, actually, there's other people like me who are having these side effects or who are also frustrated that there's no new treatments for this rare disease. And again, I think both of those scenarios turn science into something more personal rather than, as yeah. you say, something that's just being done in an ivory tower. Yeah, so this is a bit of a tangent, but it, I think it's relevant to the patients like me example, which is in a former life, I used to run lots of kind of creative innovation workshops for different clients. Uh, and sometimes it was for around new soap powder or new toys or quite random things. But the one that really stood out for me was a piece of work we did for Cancer Research UK, where we started by asking everybody to share a story that they had in relation to cancer. And in some cases, that was people who in the room had suffered from cancer themselves or lost a relative and everybody knew somebody. So within about five minutes, we had about half the room of people in tears. And it was just this amazing, amazingly emotional outpouring in relation to, in that particular case, cancer in a way that I've never really seen before or since. And, and so it just there's something inherently communal about our health conditions or, or, you know, obviously something like cancer is kind of kind of huge in that regard. With that emotional connection, therefore, came a much richer, deeper conversation that followed from that opening question about people sharing their stories in relation to their cancer stories. So I don't know, there was just something that from that experience that's really stuck with me. And I've, I've tried in different ways to bring to bring some emotion into the room if I'm facilitating events like that, because it's through that emotion that you get engagement and ultimately you get creativity and you know good ideas down the line as well and i think that's sometimes there's something cold and clinical about science the objective reality and again i say this as someone who's kind of you know proudly of a scientific heritage but at the same time there's something kind of inhuman about it as well or too often inhuman about it in my view which 
I don't know, maybe it's changing. Do you think it's changing? Well, I, th- I think the thing that I do agree with is that people like you and me are probably a little bit weird in that we probably do, are quite interested in the, in the process of science and how it progresses and all of the funny debates within it. But I think for the vast majority of people, I think it's only reasonable that people are more interested in the benefits of science, the kind of the messy details of it. And I think sometimes the mistake we make is wanting, expecting, hoping the public to be kind of as nerdy about kind of the latest developments in genetics yeah. uh, or what is going on with, you know, monoclonal antibodies or, you know, how exactly does CRISPR work? I think that's a bit kind of hubristic <laughs> of us when actually people, what people want is they want better cancer treatments or they want vaccine for COVID or they want a faster phone. And I think that's fine. I think too often we go into thinking about science's role in society with this expectation that the end goal should be a population full of people who are as nerdy about science as if they'd done a master's in research. That would be a kind of very weird society to live in and probably not one that we'd enjoy. No, true. But I mean, maybe maybe we take science for granted as well and the benefits that it bestows upon us. So maybe we need to kind of sell the benefits of science and the scientific method you know every generation has to do it in their own way i think we do definitely take the benefits of science for granted but i think also there's probably no other way to live because we also probably take the benefits of information infrastructure for granted we take our transport systems for granted we take Mm. the health system for granted we take you know so many things if we try to live our lives in a way where we were kind of constantly feeling grateful and remembering all the things which make our lives work our our brains would just explode and you wouldn't be able to do anything i think you're right though in the sense that it's not so much that i want people to be more appreciative of the tens hundreds thousands years of scientific progress that make our modern lives workable although that would be nice if some people felt that way i think where we want to get to is that people have a kind of general disposition towards trusting and understanding the role that science plays in their lives when it comes up so when something like climate change comes up or when something like COVID comes up or when, you know, the next issue comes up that people don't necessarily just have blind acceptance uh, of what the scientists are saying, but that come to that conversation with a feeling that the work that scientists are doing is in their interests and that scientists care about their future. And that means that scientists have to hold up their end of the bargain too. If we want the public to believers on climate change or vaccines we also need to be able to demonstrate that the work we're doing on climate change or vaccines genuinely is in their interests it doesn't necessarily flow so i happen to think that climate change is happening not because i've done the experiments myself i haven't run the models i haven't gone to antarctica and collected you know ice cores i haven't flown an airplane and tried to measure aerosols the reason I believe climate change is happening is because fundamentally I trust scientists. And guess what? A lot of my best friends are scientists. I've made my career in science. I get money from scientific institutions for doing my work. Of course, I trust science. I'm, I'm in it. But it doesn't necessarily follow that someone who's not like me, who hasn't had all that kind of personal connection with science, needs to feel the same thing. You know, We need to work harder at showing that even if you're not part of science, that there are good reasons why you should believe and, and understand that scientists are working for you.
the last podcast episode, I was talking with a woman called Deepa Prahalad around innovating in low-income communities. And she said, when you're innovating with and for very poor people, you need to start with what people have, not with what they don't have. And it's just a very kind of simple kind of inverted insight, but it just strikes me as as very true. We also did some work with an outfit called Exeter City Futures a couple of years ago, which is a local group of people in and around Exeter who are trying to make the city energy independent and congestion free. I was chatting to the leader of the city council who was saying we tried for about five years to sort of persuade people to sort of get behind sustainability because it was the right thing to do. But it was only when they started framing the narrative about making Exeter a brilliant place for people to live where people can thrive in their life and their work. So it was about talking about the exact same issues, but just framing it in terms of people's lives that they started to get traction with this kind of whole agenda. And I think too much starts from a sort of deficit model rather than talking about thriving or somehow the more upside. And I know that's hard to do when there's doom and gloom and it's sort of predicted for the future. How do we tell that positive thriving story that that is part of the challenge in in how we communicate and engage. I see a parallel in that with a lot of the debate and discourse we've had on vaccines and vaccine confidence and trust in vaccines. I kind of came of age in this field just after the whole MMR issue. Thinking back to then, we're seeing similar stuff now where the, the response to people who are worried about vaccines, back then and, and indeed now, which is quite dismissive and quite snooty and also uh, I think just treating people who have concerns as if they're stupid and I'm not thinking of people like Andrew Wakefield who are kind of committed anti-vax activists who I think genuinely do potentially have a malign agenda what I'm thinking Mm -hmm. of is your kind of your average parent who perhaps both parents are working full-time jobs they've got a couple of kids at home they're concerned about lots of things in life and have a lot of stuff on their minds and they come to the vaccine debate seeing doctors and scientists on one side saying vaccines are safe and other trusted authorities on the other side raising concerns and them unsurprisingly not knowing what the right answer is and looking at something like MMR and thinking well I just don't know how should I know whether it is completely safe or whether it might give my kid autism once you're vaccinated, there is no way back, right? That's one of the things they say that you can't unvaccinate a child, yeah. but you've always got the potential of choosing to do it and if you haven't already. So in some ways, it's kind of unsurprising and not entirely irrational of parents faced with uncertainty to just be thoughtful about that and want to take their time and decide. And I think if the response from the scientific and medical community is to call those parents stupid or make out that they are bad parents or they don't care about other people. I'd argue that's only going to push those kind of people further away from science and further away from an issue like vaccines. And if instead what we do is try and understand, well, what is it you're worried about? Why do you have concerns? How does this kind of affect your life? And then create responses and answers and think about who's best placed to put them forward based on that. I think we're much more likely to have um, positive results. For the situation you just described, it's always easier not to act than to act. It reminds me of colloquially known in philosophy as the trolley problem, where you've got a train running down the tracks and someone's going to die unless you change the points and then the train or the trolley will will go onto the other tracks. And so 
the actual action of pulling the lever similar to having your child vaccinated is taking the responsibility for that action or inaction. So obviously this is the issue of our age in many ways. I guess first of all, how confident are you that we are close to getting a vaccine for COVID-19? I, I wouldn't want to speculate on, on when we might have a vaccine. I'm definitely not close enough to detail to be able to predict that. What I would say is that it's clear that we're in with COVID for the long haul. Like COVID has already become endemic. You know, yeah. we've, we've managed to wipe out one disease in the history of humanity, and that was smallpox. And it's highly unlikely we're going to be able to repeat the trick with COVID given where it's already got. So this is something we are going to have to live with now. And clearly, we hope that new vaccines, new therapeutics and, and new ways of managing it will, will limit the impact. In terms of when we will get a vaccine, I'm not sure. But I think one of the things we might have to remember with COVID vaccine is it's not likely to look like a lot of the vaccines we already have. So first of all, I hope we, we're not just going to have just one. There are several in development now. And the ideal situation is that a number of those pass all their safety trials and we can scale up. Obviously, with something like flu, that vaccine changes every year because yeah. flu evolves uh, so quickly. But, you know, again, let's take something like MMR. That vaccine is 95% effective against measles. I don't, we don't know yet how effective a COVID vaccine will be. Will it be 95%? Will it be 50%? Will it be less? Will it last for six months, a year, 10 years? We don't know. Uh, we've never had to scale up production of a vaccine this quickly before. So how quickly will it be the case that we can create literally billions of doses of this? It's unknown. As I said before, clearly science and clearly a vaccine is the main exit strategy we'll have from COVID. But it won't be a silver bullet. It won't be the case that suddenly by whether it's Christmas, whether it's spring, whether it's summer next year, once we have a vaccine, the fight is over. We can go back to our normal lives a new vaccine and new vaccines will be one step on quite a long road to a global recovery from the pandemic. Absolutely. But in some ways, therefore, the work that you and your, your colleagues in the world of public engagement and science communication, it's absolutely crucial then, isn't it? Because the, the sort of information and misinformation sort of epidemic around the vaccines when they do hopefully arrive soon is as important in some ways as the sort of biological kind of efficacy of those uh, vaccines themselves, isn't it? Or how can we learn about the communication around the science as well as the science itself to, to hopefully ensure that we can actually deal with, with COVID in, in the medium to long term, uh, especially in relation to any vaccines? Absolutely. And, and, you know, we already know that attitudes to vaccines vary quite a lot. Even within a country, we see someone like France, which has amongst the highest rates of mistrust of vaccines anywhere in the world. So we, we did a global survey called the Welcome Global Monitor a couple of years back. And we found that I think it was one in five adults in France disagreed with the statement that vaccines are safe. So a huge proportion of the population. One in five, 20%. Yeah, yeah. But even within that, we know that the French population did trust some vaccines and don't trust others. And obviously, that's the same in the UK as well, where largely there doesn't seem to be that much concern about some vaccines like tetanus, for instance, Whereas things like MMR did elicit more. So different vaccines have different attitudes towards them. It varies hugely geographically. So by and large, the richer a country is. So again, France, Japan scored worst on this in terms of concern about vaccines. But the UK and the US also has significant concerns about vaccine safety. 
So what's that trend? The richer a country, the greater the distrust in vaccines? Is that, that? correct? Yeah. Huh. That surprises me. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, if you look at some of the countries that have the most trust in vaccines, that included places like Rwanda, Bangladesh, uh, Egypt was really up there. Generally, a lot of the global south um, had much higher trust in vaccines. And there's no kind of proven reason for that. But some of the hypotheses include, firstly, that in a lot of those countries, the kind of diseases that vaccines protect you from are either endemic or they have been endemic within living memory. So perhaps people are just more conscious and more cognizant of the benefits the vaccines bring in a way that perhaps we in the global north have simply forgotten or become complacent about. There's other theories that perhaps it's something about liberal societies kind of giving the space and encouraging people to question authority more. And actually, you know, maybe in in some societies, people are just used to accepting what their doctor says and what healthcare providers say and not seeing it as their uh, role to be a consumer of of healthcare rather than just a, a recipient of it. But it is a very, very striking trend that, again, I think the numbers of Bangladesh were something like 99% of people said vaccines are safe. So it's almost universally seen as a kind of a a safe thing. And another theory is that actually the word safety might mean different things in in different places. Because I might say, is driving a car safe? Well, it kind of depends on whether you are willing to take the risk that, you know, for every X thousand miles, you're likely to get into a, a lethal crash. So perceptions of safety might be different in different places that... The actual risk is perceived as the same, but whether that's a risk worth taking is seen as more or less tolerable in different contexts. What's that behavioural economics thing around loss aversion? So we sort of overestimate risk and underestimate benefit. But yeah, bringing it back to COVID, I think there is sometimes this assumption that because COVID has been so bad um, Mm. and because it's touched the lives of almost probably almost everyone in the world by now Mm. in one way or another, that once a vaccine is available, people will just flock to it. And I think that is a dangerous assumption. I think we need to test that. We will never have had a a vaccine like this before. You know, if people talk about it having been rushed, if in America it's called the China vaccine rather than the Make America Great vaccine, that will create a different vibe for it. There's all sorts of kind of political and media and uh, Mm. other contextual factors that might mean that people aren't as hungry for it as perhaps we might hope. But that'd be fascinating to see if in... Well, vaccines might get rolled out in richer countries first, but maybe less effective if, if there's a sort of greater scepticism about their efficacy as well. So there's a, a global scale experiment in the kind of perception and effectiveness of, well, trust in science about to happen. I'm, ju- I'm just curious how you feel so far COVID has sort of changed science and our relationship as kind of society with science i remember chatting to someone in an organization i used to work for who worked in it support and she said she would occasionally create a sort of outage on the it network just uh, and then rectify it just to kind of demonstrate her value to the organization and it comes back to this taking science for granted kind of thing that we were talking about earlier i'm not suggesting we should create a scare just to let everyone appreciate the the role that science plays in society but we have had as big a scare as we possibly could have done really in relation to our global health. And so I'm just wondering whether the appreciation for science and expertise will increase, maybe not immediately, but over time. Do you have any hints or clues about that? Or is it just too early to tell? Uh, I think it's too early to tell. But the lucky thing is that we will hopefully have the evidence soon. So I mentioned earlier the study that we did at Welcome, the Welcome Global Monitor. Mm -hmm. 
So we asked about vaccines and confidence in vaccines, but we also asked about trust in science. And this was an enormous survey. So we went to 140 countries around the world, asked 140,000 people. So it was the first ever global study of perceptions and attitudes to science. And we're actually um, in the field right now with the follow-up survey. So we're planning to do it every two years initially. And again, we're asking the same questions around, do people trust science? Do they trust doctors? How does that correlate with their socioeconomic status, their gender, whether they live in, you know, city or the countryside. So next spring and summer, we will have this data that we collected in the middle of the pandemic. And we'll be able to see compared to 2018, were people more or less trusting the science? So stay tuned. Is there a hypothesis you're trying to test with that particular piece of research? Or uh, do you have expectations about what the, the trend might be? I wouldn't say this hypothesis, but if you put a gun to my head and ask me to guess... I'd say at this stage in the pandemic, or at least the stage we were at over summer, I would have expected to see increases in trust in science because for exactly the reason you say, I think people will have realised just how crucial it is to have research done this. The slight risk is that the longer this goes on and the longer perhaps people start doubting whether science can provide an answer, you can imagine it's starting to go the other way. But one of the things I think is quite important about the pandemic is I think too often in science and in the communication of science, we present science as a finished product. We say, look, the research is done. We've published the paper. Here's our finding. And what we don't do often enough is present science as a constant work in progress. And ultimately, every scientific finding is not final. It's tentative. Even something as basic as Newton discovering and understanding how gravity works, that got superseded by you know, Einstein's understanding of how gravity works in terms of space-time being curved. And the stuff we're finding out about COVID today might be supplanted by new understandings we have in a few months' time. And I think there is something dangerous that we often fall into with science as, as presenting what we've done as the final word, uh, rather than as a continuing accumulation of, of knowledge and understanding about the way the universe and life and health works. So I actually think one good thing about COVID uh, and obviously COVID is overwhelmingly bad, but one potential good thing about COVID is it has shown society at large that science is a process and you start from a place where you don't know things uh, and you try and understand it better, that the more time goes by, the better you'll understand it still. And that it's not just the case of opening the book of nature and reading what the results are, but it's taking the results of tens of thousands of passionate and really worried people from around the world working on science to help us get through this. Uh, it's, it's not just like flicking a, a switch and pressing a button on a computer. No, absolutely. So does science and scientists need to show a bit more of their uncertainty and their vulnerability rather than presenting something as stone cold fact as well? I, I'm just wondering whether if in doing so that it could go one of two ways. People could recognise that science is a process and an evolving story, like you say, or it could add anxiety and doubt in people's minds You know, in terms of the efficacy of it. It's very hard to get that balance right between confident articulation of what the science is telling us, whether it's climate change or COVID or anything else, versus at the margin of error. I see it both ways. And I just think that I recognise that risk. You know, I recognise that fear that mm. if scientists stand up and say, actually, we haven't figured out exactly the mechanism through which increased CO2 will potentially move the Gulf Stream north or south. We haven't worked at every single detail of it. People might grasp on that and you're like, aha, they clearly don't know whether climate change is happening. So I do see that risk and I do think it's an, an important thing to bear in mind. But I'd say that the reason that risk exists in the first place is that people have this misperception of science as this final word. 
and they're not seeing science as this ongoing project where we are gradually getting more and finer understanding of, of the way these phenomena work. The benefits for me outweigh the risk, the benefits of humanizing science, of humanizing scientists, again, making clear that, you know, we're standing at the very edge of knowledge uh, and constantly trying to understand more and that that is not a foolproof process and it's not a, an easy thing to do. And it's a complex, hard one, back and forth with nature. I think the more people who gain kind of that understanding of science in future, the better we'll be placed to say, we're trying to tackle this problem, we're doing the best we can. We're doing it for you and, and work with us. So yeah, your Twitter biography says that you work on the connections between science, culture and society. And I was just curious how and why you think science is separate or potentially connected from culture and society. The distinction I draw is that I think there are other bits of our culture and other bits of our society where more people feel like they have a stake and they're part of their shared identity. So you know, the examples I often give is, you know, let's look at something like music. You don't need to be a professional musician. You don't need to be, have a degree in music to feel like music is part of who you are. You know, the same with football. You don't need to be a professional footballer. You can play on the weekend. You can follow it. Politics. You don't need to work in a political institution to feel like you can get energized and excited about it. And there are all these parts of our society where we recognize that there is a, you know, there's a continuum. There's the people who work in that profession or that sector or that industry who are experts who spend their whole life trying to hone their craft and become better at it and make their money out of it and there's people at the other extreme who don't care don't want to care are happy someone else is doing it but frankly it's not for them but there's a bunch of people in the middle who are interested are engaged see themselves as part of what that makes that institution or that part of our culture tick and work and my fear with science is that we're in much more of a binary, that most people are at one extreme or the other. You, you have the people who work in scientific institutions, got a degree in science, feel like they are nerds, uh, and that's great. And then you've got a bunch of people on the other side who didn't do any of those things, and whose main reaction to science is like, oh, I haven't done any of that since I was at school. It's only for clever people. It's not for me. And what I would like to do is kind of recognize that we need to kind of pull science a bit closer to society and make it easier for more people to be in that middle space to, to to not say that you need to be you need to have a degree in science or you need to be einstein to see it as part of who you are and part of your identity but to create some more space for those those connections Thank you, Imran. I was really struck by what he said about if we want the public to believe in science, we need to make and remake the case for the role of science in people's lives, and that trust in vaccines appears to be inversely proportional to the wealth of countries, and that we need to present science as a constant work in progress that never ends. I hope you enjoyed listening too, and if you want to find out more about Imran, then I'll share a few links in the episode description for you to follow up. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that seeks to solve hard problems. Our community is supported by our patrons, 
And so I'd particularly like to thank and welcome our latest members, Victor Piper, Alicia Peskovska. To find out more about Liminal or to join our community, please visit www.weareliminal.co forward slash community. Please can you share this podcast with others who might like it and also rate it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.